Welcome to Side Talks, the official podcast of the Sidewalk Film Festival. My name is Corey Kraft. I am a programmer for Sidewalk, including the new Sidewalk Film Center and Cinema. And I'm Rachel Morgan, and um, I'm creative director for those things. So yeah, let's let's talk about podcast stuff. All and things cinema. Cinema. Get ready for a five-minute fight. Five-minute round one fight. So guess what? It's time for Corey. Five-minute agreement. A five-minute fight. Uh, we can, why, why? Why can't we get along? Can we start the clocks? Let's I got a thumbs up. Right. Almost. Now. Go. Spectacular. Now. What's your beef? Okay. I have many a beef. First of all, so you like this film, okay? I, I really, really love this film. This this film came out in 2013. It was one of those, like, really beautiful, well-observed teen romances mm. uh, that I think got it right. And oh. it kind of swept me off my feet. Uh, and I think it's got a bunch of really great performances. Miles Teller and Shailene Woodley. This is where Shailene Woodley, like, you know, she she kind of made her debut in The Descendants, the Alexander Payne movie. But this is where I knew she was the real deal. Um, Brie Larson, Kyle Chandler, Jennifer Jason Lee, all really great in supporting roles. Mm-hmm. A24 releasing. I gotcha. I yeah, gotcha. I, and it's, I, I just think it's a, a, a terrific teen movie. So what are your problems? I found it to be entertaining. Uh-huh. I found it to be enjoyable. I watched it. I made it all the way through. I was not bored at any point. I've got some major problems with the film. Okay. First of all, I don't understand how you can like this male lead character as much as you do. Clearly, I don't. I don't. I don't think he's a likable person. He's a smug asshole. Yeah. And he's... you are the one who's always on Ferris Bueller's back. This is like Ferris Bueller without Cameron or whatever. The difference like, is this kid gets cut down to size does he though yes he does i don't know but he gets fully cut down to size and so here's my major problem with it It isn't so much that he i find him to be really i find him to be an unlikable alcoholic Mm -hmm. but in addition to that it's mostly that she's a one-dimensional character i like shailene a lot i like that actress a lot um you know as a human being i wish she'd shut her mouth about feminism because she doesn't know what the hell she's talking about but that's another us weekly moment she's a really good performer but she's a great performer i love her face yeah um she's really enjoyable to to watch um she's great on big little lies and Mm -hmm. Pretty much everything else she does. Yeah, yeah. I like her in this as a human, as a, as a as a character in terms of the way she looks and her performance. But the character itself is problematic. This is like every dude's dream of a girl who's just agreeable, goes along with everything. There's not a whole lot of depth to her. She's just like the bookworm that like, you know, it's some, you know, there's some certainly some element of, of influence here from things like say anything. Right. But point being that she's just like, you know, he almost kills her in the in, in a car wreck. Yeah. And she's like, I'm sorry. And I mean, he even I get that he acknowledges that. But there's still like, you know, I don't want to spoil everything for you, but there's still like another moment that happens. And she just is so every turn is just forgiving and loving and kind and and there's nothing else to her at no point does she stop and question like what's going on as a matter of fact she just lets him drag her into being a fucking loser alcoholic and i just i think it's so super problematic that that's going on in this film but the, the film does not like endorse that the film shows that it doesn't his matter whether is, it endorses it damaging. or not it, i it, mean it's pretty it never... clearly you know that he is in the wrong that she deserves better, that he needs to get his shit together. Agreed, but why can't she he... be a full, well-rounded character, well, an actual an actual character as opposed to just a yes bitch? So you, you have me at a disadvantage because <laughs> I haven't seen the movie in six years. So I can't draw... Six years ago, it was okay for women to be one-dimensional. So that's part of what's oh going my God. on. Oh, my God. Um, 
I can't draw, but I, as I recall, I thought it was at the time, I thought it was a refreshing sort of step away from the manic pixie dream girl thing. Yeah, it's not. She is, you know, it's a step, it's a sidestep in another direction, mm. but it's still a flat, problematic, like, why can't she have any depth? Why can't she be more interesting? Why can't she have, like, she doesn't, she has none of the things that that he has as a character. He, she really doesn't. It feels like a very broadly painted sort of basic uh, yes person to his character that's just there to facilitate, you know, him working through his shit with his dad and his alcoholism, yeah. which he doesn't really work through, but maybe I guess has a, you know, ha- there's a moment of realization or what have you. I- sure. I'll give you that. But I just found it to be such a missed opportunity. And again, with that kind of cast that that, that the film is bringing, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I, Jennifer put Jennifer Jason Lee in anything and I'm, you know, yeah. kind of on board. But I mean, and, and again, I, I actually don't even mind, what's the gentleman name he plays this Miles role Teller. i don't even really mind him his face is a little hard but to look at but um other than that i don't really mind him you know I, th- it- I think he's really good in this uh, obviously i can't fully rebut what you're saying because i haven't seen the movie in so long but it, i mean the film is clearly from his point of view his perspective and as a character study of him this this sort of white teen who has charmed his way up to a point and hasn't really earned anything he has gotten and has the rug pulled out from under him all of a sudden in many, many different ways. I thought it was a pretty moving exploration of that. I think even when something is a character piece focused on one character, you still want to have some dimension. Uh, you know what? This is anybody's anybody's yeah, fight. It could I go think either way. it could go either way. It's it probably all about way. whether or not you know Sam likes about this movie. Whether Sam has seen this right. movie, right? Right. Or or if he wants to pander to a twenty four. Oh lord! Here's your opportunity, Sam, to pander to a twenty four. They make great movies. What what can you say? Oh my gosh. Corey gets some bonus points for saying it swept me off my feet. That's just funny to hear coming from Corey. Uh, so a thousand points for that. Um, is it a terrific teen movie? Absolutely not. It's, is it a step away from the manic pixie dream girl? No, Rachel said it's a step to the side and it absolutely is. It's just a different rebranding of the manic pixie stereotype. Um, and yeah, uh, Miles Teller plays a smug asshole just as bad as Ferris Bueller. Um, He is an unlikable alcoholic and also played by an unlikable actor and overall person. Uh, (laughs) It's it's not not just the movie, but Miles Teller is just... His name mm, is Miles Teller. mm -mm. He's okay. (laughs) Um, And Shailene Woodley's character is absolutely probably absolutely problematic um the manic pixie type uh so five thousand points to rachel for pointing that out and uh ten thousand more points to rachel for saying she's just a yes bitch because it's kind of what she is in the movie um (laughs) and it's clearly written by someone who just loved 500 days of summer for the wrong reasons written by the same screenwriters which you picked up on and didn't even know (laughs) that makes sense you can really tell then um and so Corey says it's a character study of this type of character, but who would really want to see a character study of a privileged white male alcoholic, especially when played by Miles Teller? So for all those reasons, Rachel wins this one. I, guess you I am so happy right now. It. It's about time. So 
you know, whatever. Turn it around. Whatever. Turn it around. Well, I just, I love that movie. I don't, I don't get it. He, I know. I know. I'm so sorry. It has a great title. Spectacular now is a wonderful title. I was excited to see it. And then it went. It has bubbles from the wire being like all, you know, paternal, but sassy. And that's the shopkeeper or whatever. It's got a high school in it and a car. Kyle Chandler, the scene with the dad. Come on. That's such a like heartbreaking Mm, moment. I thought it was kind of pedestrian. And now a look at what we're watching this week. So, Corey, we do this thing on the podcast that um, I mean, every episode, really. Where we talk about what we're watching. So what in the world are you watching right now? I haven't seen a ton lately, but I do want to talk about a movie that I did catch um, a little while back that I absolutely flipped my lid for. Let's hear it. One of my favorite movies of the year. Um, it's uh, James Gray's science fiction um, epic Journey of Discovery Ad Astra, starring Brad Pitt as um an astronaut sent to the farthest reaches of the solar system to find his estranged father who may or may not be behind um, a series of experiments that threaten life on Earth. Pitt is a sort the sort of stoic masculine ideal of an American astronaut. Surprise. Square jaw, clenched, no emotions. But it as he moves further into the solar system, Uh, He moves deeper inward within himself to sort of uh, examine uh, the source of his trauma, examine who he really is. Um, And it ends up being a really stirring story of uh, self-discovery and an examination of toxic, repressed masculinity as well. Uh, Apart from being, you know, an extraordinary sort of visionary science fiction story, James Gray is one of those directors who's been poised for a breakout for a while. Um, He made a splash in some indie circles with a couple movies like The Yards and and Two Lovers with a really great Joaquin Phoenix performance. But his past few have been complete home runs. Uh, The Immigrant with Marianne Cotillard and Joaquin Phoenix is amazing. I really loved his adaptation of The Lost City of Z um, with Charlie Hunnam and Robert Pattinson. And now this, um, which takes, I think, pages from both of those movies, um, along with things like 2001 and Apocalypse Now. Um, You can probably pick out all the visual references this movie has, but it's this alchemic unusual thing that's that's wholly its own um and a really extraordinary vision from a big studio i was i was really really taken with this that does not surprise me um i haven't seen it yet uh but i will say to keep people awake um and you know how have the us magazine brain as you pointed out um Uh i did i did hear that um brad pitt reached into the depth of his soul and examined um his relationship with angelina jolie the beautiful Angelina Jolie, uh-huh. in order to you know bring all the things he needed to this role, um, and so yeah, there's that. <laughs> well, that doesn't surprise <laughs> me. Um, this is probably one of his better performances. Probably. Oh, it takes a divorce to get him somewhere good. I mean, he's he's been plenty of good places before. <laughs> I'm just being provocative. You, I oh, I can tell. He's he's a very good actor. He's been. Um, I think Corey's he's sort starting of starting to sweat. No, I'm not. Well, a little. Um, I think he's aged into a a much better actor than he was when he started. Yeah, when he started on like Family Ties and right. stuff, it was tough. Yeah, but but he's he's gotten where he needs to be, and this is extraordinary. All right, he's no longer just uh, abs and a 
you know. No, though it's once upon a time in Hollywood showed he does have that <laughs> Still too. Still got the abs. Yeah, they're still there. How do you do that at 70? Anyway, moving right along, um, I, uh, I've been watching quite the opposite. Uh, I thought I'd bring up one that's a sleeper. You're probably going to get really rattled by this one, but it's a film I actually like a lot um, called Mr. Wrong. I have never seen this. This is, is this the Ellen DeGeneres? It's Ellen DeGeneres yeah. and Bill Pullman, and it's really outrageous and ridiculous, and it's one that just got, you know, it came out, and it, it did probably a little something in the box office and got swept under the rug, and nobody's watched it again except for me. But I really actually like it a lot. It's it's really funny and really strange and really stupid in a lot of ways. But the general premise is that it's also really dark. It's yeah. darker than you think it might be. Um, and it's sort of like general ideas that Ellen DeGeneres is like, you know, trying to she's sort of come off of a bad relationship, I think, and is trying to um, if I'm remembering correctly, because I've seen a lot of stuff. Um, but she's trying to date again and goes on this sort of like a blindish kind of dare meets, I think, meets Bill Pullman in a bar and. He gets, um, you know, everything's perfect at first. It's like that, you know, everything's just like, oh, it's so great. And the song in the jukebox, they both were going to play the same song. And it's like, it's it's too good to be true. And indeed, it is too good to be true. Um, and it sort of starts going downhill when Bill Pullman lays across the bed really in a sexy manner and begins to, to read poetry. Um, and it also becomes really aware of just how ridiculous these two characters are as sort of leading men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, and at it, 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 no point does Ellen DeGeneres ever vibe heterosexual in any way, shape, or form. Like, there's zero chemistry between these two people, which is part of what makes the film work. And I'm not suggesting that people who are straight can't play gay characters. That's a whole other argument, but I'm not having that argument right now. But I'm also not suggesting that gay characters can't play straight. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that Ellen DeGeneres is basically playing herself. Mm-hmm. And she is gay, in any case that nobody noticed. Um, yep, she's gay. So anyway, point being that there's zero chemistry here, and it's right. really weird. And it just gets darker and darker and weirder and weirder. And you probably remember from the trailer, there's a scene of, like, don't you, in a diner where he's like, Bill Pullman's like, you know, how much will I do for you? Do you want to see? I'll break my finger. And he sits at the diner across table across from her and breaks his finger in her face. And that sort of sums up how this thing goes. I mean, it's... It's freaking wacky and insane. Um, but I, re- I actually really like it. And there's so many weird lines of dialogue and weird things that happen that are, if you watch it several times, you'll sort of pick up on. Like, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, they do like a butt implant on him and his ass just gets bigger. But there's not there's like one small reference to it. But otherwise, it's sort of just barely noticeable. It's very odd. Anyway, I, I like the film a lot. So it, that I guess it came out of this glut of darker than you'd expect comedies in the mid 90s like mid in 96 release it reminds me of the cable guy the way you described it there i mean a, oh, a romantic don't comedy do version it, of the cable guy <laughs> directed um, by nick castle no kidding mm-hmm. wow um yeah none of those mid 90s darker than you'd think comedies really did anything including the cable guy so right well when you look at the cover to this you're like oh you know, it's sort of like a, oh, look at Ellen being sort of dipped backwards with like a, I don't know, right. she's got some kind of wedding dress thing on. And it's like crazy. And it's way, it's it's not exactly that. And as a matter of fact, you'll, if you're watching it, you'll be like probably 25, 30 minutes in and going, what the hell are you talking about before it sort of takes a really hard turn? Yeah. Um, I, anyway, I kind of, I recommend it. So that that's what I'm watching. I'll, I'll look into it. Yeah, but we'll see. <laughs> Worth it if you do. Hey. Guess what? What? What's this shit? If I ever sing it, and I'm not going to, but if I ever do, I'm going to go like really low baritone like What's Matt Berninger in the shit? national style. I can't even do it. What's this shit? I mean, that's better. They could probably, 
I think we need to let me do it again and then they can auto-tune it. What's this shit? And it'll get auto-tuned. Okay. So I'm um, in, you know, let me just, let's take it back a minute. I'm okay. at the gym. They have one of those screens. They project a film on it. I go in. It's always shitty action. Almost always, except for when it was Clue. Um, anyway, so it's usually shitty action. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's shitty comedy. Occasionally there's a good film or two, but most of the time it's just bad news. And so, um, you know, and you're going to take offense to that one. I think that I laid this one out for you. Are you ready? So okay. I, I basically tell you the little section that I've seen and you guess what it is um, because you've got a weird crazy imdb brain okay so i'm on the tread and i'm looking at the screen and i see a farmhouse okay um i see thor i see the the young woman now still young woman i suppose that was in freaks and geeks i already know what this is can i Um, you can continue but sure i mean let me give you one more clue there's some kind of really insane um wood cutting happening where he breaks the wood apart Where, where captain america rips a log in half with his bare hands yes what is it? It's Avengers Age of Ultron. <laughs> um, Joss Whedon's second and, and to date final Avengers movie uh, from... What's the runtime? Oh, I wish I could tell you. Because <laughs> um, that would be really impressive. From 2015, uh, this is kind of the black sheep of the Avengers movies. Um, Tony Stark creates an artificial intelligence uh, a robot called Ultron, played by James Spader, in a little bit of a um, you know Brat Pack reunion between Downey and Spader. Um, he's really good. Um, Ultron goes on a rampage because he thinks that human beings are terrible and deserve to be eradicated. Kind of hard to argue the point, um, but eventually, of course, the Avengers, including um, Elizabeth Olsen and Aaron Taylor Johnson, who make their introductions in that movie, is Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. Um, they save the day. Oh boy! Uh, the end of the movie is Ultron bored out of my skull. An entire country, <laughs> an entire country into the air using some sort of crazy God, science, I whatever. Hate it when that happens, and threatening to drop it from a great height, which would cause an extinction level event. Fortunately, that's what's happening with global warming. They just don't want to tell us. But it's really we're, we're being countries in yes, the air. we're being held in the air right well, now. Well, fortunately, the Avengers saved the day. That's not going to happen um, this time around. Well, you know. Well, I was I, I couldn't hear what anybody was saying to each other because I didn't you know I didn't have the captions on yeah. and and I was just I was listening to to uh, Spice Girls. Sure, as one does. Um, and it was just you know it wasn't even enjoyable with Spice Girls on. So anyway, well, I actually like the I like the farmhouse sequence because I mean it comes late in the movie and it just kind of slows everything down. And focuses on the characters, which those movies don't frequently get to do. So I saw drama. There was yeah. a child getting hugged, and I yeah. could tell that there was stuff happening. And so you know, I didn't care, but I saw stuff happening. And I can't imagine you would, even if you watched the the movie in full with sound. So uh, maybe give this one a pass. But but for what it is, I think it's it's pretty good. Okay. Well, there you go. You you answered it. That's what this shit is. And now, fast film terms. Um, hey, Corey, hey, say Rachel. it really fast, the thing we do really fast. Fast film terms. Fast film terms. See how I didn't even say it all the way? Because yeah. that's how fast we're getting. Fast film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? What's a bottle episode? Bottle episode is an episode in a television series that um, is usually written to take advantage of minimal resources, usually set on a single location. So 
when you've spent a lot of money on big episodes elsewhere in the season, you can cut money in production by just having a handful of cast members in a single location, mostly just talking. Um, the sitcom community used to do several of these um, in a self-referential fashion. Um, I think of something like, I guess you could call Pine Barrens and The Sopranos a bit of a bottle episode. Um, and the notorious episode Fly and Breaking Bad, which takes place entirely in the laboratory, um, is another good example. So it's really just kind of a cost-saving maneuver for a long series. Um, but um, sometimes, you know, that's when the writing has to get innovative and interesting because it's usually just conversation and character development, which, um, you know, the plottier uh, episodes of a series don't necessarily have time for all the time. So it's really about saving some money and not necessarily about saving the writers any time. Yeah, exactly. If anything, it's it's harder for the writers right? because they have to concoct scenarios that will stay interesting in a single uh, single setting. Okay. Well, that was our... (laughs) (laughs) And now we'd like to welcome Charlie Brown Sanders III to the studio for his segment, Film History Minute with Charlie Brown. Today I'm going to talk about a movie called Idiocracy. Director Mike Judge had been toying around with doing a movie about human evolution for years. The idea for Idiocracy came up after a family trip to Disneyland in 2001. While waiting in line with his daughters at the Alice in Wonderland ride, two women with strollers began arguing, which quickly escalated into a cussing match. Judge thought it was astonishing how little time had passed, but how much society had changed from the well-mannered Disneyland of the 1950s to one where rude behavior was commonplace. In Idiocracy, Judge and co-writer Eton Cohen, no relation to the Cohen brothers, show us a world where society has continued to de-evolve for 500 years, becoming dumber and dumber. Unfortunately, many of the things they envisioned have already begun to happen since the film's 2006 release, such as exceedingly high levels of garbage, overly aggressive police, portion control, advertising being everywhere, the breakdown of the English language, and the dominance of large corporations. The emergence of Donald Trump as a presidential candidate in 2016 fits so perfectly in the idiocracy world that there was rumors that Judge would produce idiocracy-themed campaign ads featuring President Camacho portrayed by actor Terry Crews. The ads did not happen, but Crews was excited at the idea of resurrecting his character. He had auditioned five times for the movie and wanted the part so badly he is quoted in a 2010 interview as saying, I was like, I'm Camacho. It got to the point where I was like, dude, if you find somebody better, just give it to him. I literally told them that. A large majority of the graphics in the idiocracy world were conceived by graphic designers Ellen Lample and Darren Glifford, such as Nasty and FedExXX. Lample described the logos in the film as a visual vernacular fusion of NASCAR, candy packaging, Mexican hand-painted signs, and Japanese pop culture. Judge was actually surprised about how many companies allowed their logo to be made fun of in the film. He recalled that when he talked to the studio lawyers about Starbucks clearance issues, the lawyer said, well, it would help if you didn't pick on just one company and if you did more than one. Based on the advice, Judge and Cohen added the red light district, which included Starbucks with the likes of H&R Block's tax return and relief. Idiocracy was released by 20th Century Fox in 2006 to limited audiences. 
Due to struggles with how to market the film, the studio ultimately buried Idiocracy's theatrical release. It is speculated that some of the sponsors may have actually been unhappy with the way their products were placed and made some phone calls to higher-ups. A Fox spokesman said, The decision came down to an executive decision from the chairman of the board. There was no publicity done by the film's stars Luke Wilson and Maya Rudolph, and when the film did finally arrive in theaters, the listing was often billed as Untitled Mike Judge Comedy. While the film only made $450,000 back of its $4 million budget, upon its release to DVD, Idiocracy immediately became a cult classic. As time goes on, it may continue to serve as a crystal ball for a society it's so accurately lampooned. So now it's time for Kyle's Corner. Kyle McKinnon is a features programmer for the Sidewalk Film Festival and Cinema. He's going to take a few minutes to talk about whatever the heck he wants to. Hello, this is Kyle. I'm currently wearing blue blocker sunglasses. Um, uh, like the literally the ads seen on TV kind that are uh, can, can handle um, getting hit by a hammer and they won't be scratched according to the box I got. Um, I've been having a lot of difficulty with sleep over since last May. And so while I've tried things like exercise and eating healthy and not drinking alcohol and things like that, I, uh, my latest thing I'm trying is to reduce the amount of blue light I take in, uh, during the evening. Um, however, it's, it's not even the evening yet and I'm wearing them. I wore them all day at work today because my boss was out of town and it just made sense. Uh, and really my eyes feel great. Um, I, so I got these specifically to be like nighttime movie watching glasses. Now, gr- granted, everything I see is in this beautiful amber. Um, I'm I'm really curious to see how it goes over the next um, uh, few years. So we'll just we'll just stick to that and, and see what happens. But it it worked pretty well last night. I did wake up like at three, but I went to bed uh, just like a little after eight o'clock. So they they must be doing the trick, right? Um, so, uh, and I think I know, maybe Rachel has a photo to accompany this. She took a photo of me a moment ago. Um, back when we started doing this podcast, I had spoken about how I had canceled a lot of streaming services and had been attempting to um, go back to kind of like passing around physical media, sharing stuff with friends, and also checking stuff out of the library. Well, um, I'm happy to report that I've really stuck with that. Um, there are obviously some exceptions. I really like the Canopy uh, streaming site, that service that links up with the library, with your library card. And um, there's some there's some of the best content out there uh, on like any streaming service on Canopy. That's with a K. So check that out. You get free uh, six free checkouts a month, and uh, and that's kind of what you're limited to. Um, but I've been still using the library. I took a little bit of a, a break during June and July because that's when Sidewalk Festival programming got really hectic. Um, but I'm back at it now, and I recently picked up from my local Eastwood library, uh, the one in the strip mall, I picked up the Mario Bava movie, Black Sunday, which I um, had never seen before. And I actually am not terribly familiar with the work of Mario Bava. Um, I actually have probably seen more movies by his son, Lamberto Bava, than, uh, than Mario Bava. But he's often hailed um, as just a uh, like a mega horror autorist filmmaker. And I also don't know a terrible lot about movies, uh, like horror movies that like predate uh, like 1960, and that's when this one came from. So I wanted to check that out. And uh, 
man, it really, really paid off. It was so, so awesome. Uh, I've watched it actually probably like two and a half times since I've checked it out, and that includes listening to the commentary track by film historian Tim Lucas. That uh, that uh, man, that is one heck of a commentary track just loaded with information and enthusiasm um, and great insight. Um, but so uh, Black Sunday, it is a, uh, it it checks off tons of boxes uh, as far as horror movie goes, like flashes of lightning, howling wind sounds, um, lots of footage in the, uh, in the deep dark woods, uh, haunted castle, uh, witches, vampires. Actually, you can't really tell. They're both re- referred to as witches and vampires. References to Satan. Um, uh, secret passages, trap doors, people being set on fire. Lots of gory special effects. But man, just the, everything put together is just like perfection. And one, one of the things I was just really blown away by was the special effects in this movie. That were largely invented by Mario Bava, or at least some of them I know were, were have been utilized before. And but I mean, his father was a t- cinematographer, and uh, who was who had dabbled in in special effects in like the nineteen teens and the twenties and thirties. And uh, Bava had a, uh, also was a cinematographer before he became a director, um, and he had uh, he apparently had just been working at that for the longest time. But here are a few things that just really blew me away when watching when watching the movie. Um, uh, I haven't even given you the plot, but uh, it, it, witches, vampires, uh, takes place over two centuries, the 1600s, and then uh, witch gets burned at the stake along with her lover, and um, or they almost get burned at the stake, but it rains, and so they get buried instead, so therefore their corpses get reanimated 200 years later in the 1800s by a professor and his assistant. Um, so um, uh, one of the coolest things that happens is an effect where the um, the corpse of the witch who's in this tomb, she has just like huge cavities for, or basically her eye sockets are just uh, out in the open, like she, there's no eyes and all. And um, and after she receives a few drops of blood by uh, by the professor getting scraped, um, when he's he's off and she's her corpse is just hanging out by itself. All of a sudden, like in in her uh, eye cavities, these eyes just float to the top. And it's very, very unsettling looking. And because you're just staring at this static shot of just like a, a wax special effect, like a wax prop face. And all of a sudden these eyes fill in. Well, Tim Lucas on the commentary said that those were poached eggs that were slowly lifted up to fill the to fill the eye sockets. Um, and uh, it, it totally makes sense when you look at it and you learn that. But man, it's, uh, it's an excellent trick. There's a great trick that... I learned about from a horror documentary that our friend Splash 96 turned me on to. And um, this trick was originally used in 1931's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where you, uh, in one one take, one shot, you see um, Jekyll turn into Hyde. Like, the, the actual makeup just appears on his face. And it turns out that this is an in-camera trick with a filter over the lens where as the filter was slowly turned, it would reveal layers of makeup on the face so um, that you otherwise didn't know were there. And so it turned from like a normal pale face to like one with like dark, deep lines across it and and uh, smudges under the eyes and stuff. And so they use that similar effect for the, um, for the aged witch when she starts sucking the life out of um, her 
her descendant of 200 years played by the same actress they uh uh, you actually see the like the lines and wrinkles in her face disappear, and that was not done in post at all. It was done by just turning a filter, um, and it really looks better than most any effects you'd see in you know any of these movies these days. Um, let's see, there's a few more. One one that uh, just really really blew my face off, um, and I had seen that, which is even the reason I checked this movie out because I saw this clip in a documentary. It's when the villain's villain's corpse gets reanimated and rises from uh from the grave and it's um it's one long take for the longest time until it gets chopped up but it's a uh there, it starts with a um young girl in a barn and she's doing her thing milking the cows and the camera slowly slowly kind of hovers past her and it and it um moves towards the window frame it's nighttime and lightning is flashing and the camera keeps moving in uh for towards the frame the window frame and then it goes through it and you just a, there's a grave in the background and we're approaching it and then uh and then all of a sudden the ground is rumbling and it's a close-up of, of these clawed hands just coming through and then uh you know cut to the gnarly trees with lightning flashing and then you uh you see the uh the villain who's wearing this mask that's been nailed to his face just coming out from under the ground and it is the coolest looking thing um it just screams horror with just a capital h uh so it turns out what i learned about that is that um the uh they wanted to do that entire thing in one take and i'm glad they didn't because it really benefited from some really stylized cutting but what they did uh what um, the reason they couldn't do it in one take is because the actor uh, was under such heavy costuming and, and this big mask, this uh, the mask of Satan was wearing that, that um, he was passing out multiple times and almost suffocated to death. So they needed to try to just make sure he didn't die and can get through the take. And, and it worked. It, it benefited in the end. Uh, and then there was just one more trick that I thought was really cool. There's a few more I'm just not mentioning, but one uh, was there's this massive fireplace in this castle, and uh, the camera slowly moves towards it. It dollies towards it, and in the back of the fireplace, this door opens, and that's where two of the characters appear. appear. It's the villain, and then he's also um, the, the possessed professor, the possessed professor and um there's kind of standing in the fireplace and the camera moves in close enough to the professor who's kind of under this spell and he starts walking forward and it looks as if he's just you really just see his face and you see all the smoke from the fire below but he walks towards the camera and then the camera pulls out again to show that he's he has made it through the fireplace and it looks like he walked right through the fire but it's really an interesting trick of the uh, the way that the camera turns and he steps aside, but you don't really see him step aside. And uh, man, these kind of like uh, these tangible tactile tricks are so wonderful. And I still get excited by it. And I'm really happy to be excited by these things because I didn't know I could still be excited by uh, by horror at this point. Now it just it just looks like I have to go backwards. And uh, uh, but we I don't know that might be an argument for down the road. Anyways, um, this is me um, blabbering about Black Sunday, but check it out. You can get it at the Graysville Library, uh, or you can find it on Canopy, or um, uh, there's or at your favorite online retailer. This is Kyle. Thanks for listening. Kyle McKinnon is a feature film programmer for the Sidewalk Film Center and Cinema.
So thank you so much for listening to our tiny little podcast that we call Side Talks. I'm surprised anybody does, but we're really appreciative of having our audience. Check us out on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Sidewalk Film. You know, drop us a message if you want to. We're responsive, right? Like we'll, I don't know. It's podcast at sidewalkfest.com. We'll definitely respond. We have an email address. We have an email address. Send us an email. I'm just lonely, okay? I want to talk to people. We also have a hashtag, which is cool. It's, it's hashtag side talks. Oh. You forget it every time, but it's just the name of the show. Well, that's that's good to know. <laughs> hashtag Corey was right. Hashtag side talks. We are your own personal Zach and Screech. Oh, boy. So thank you for which listening. Which one am I? I don't want to ask. Oh, don't, I don't, never don't mind. ask. I don't want to ask. I have blonde hair, bitch. <laughs> Okay, so thank you for listening. Thank you to the beautiful Batwell Studios for having us in here and dealing with all the shit that they deal with with us. Oh, my gosh. And thanks to Splash 96 for our lovely music. We love you, Jason Keener. And thanks to all of our sponsors um, (laughs) for everything in the world. We don't need to list them. We're sorry for the antics slash you're welcome for the antics. We're protecting you by not listing your name right now. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Bye. Batwell Studios Podcast Division. Your words, our expertise.